You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. TrickBot came back, but so did its nemesis from Redmond. Microsoft and its partners have taken down most of the new infrastructure the gang re-established. CISA publishes election rumor control. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission has a white paper on supply chain security. Japan says it'll take steps to secure next summer's Olympics. Joe Kerrigan takes issue with Twitter and Facebook limiting the spread of published news stories. Our guest is Carolyn Crandall from Ativo with a look at the market for cyber deception tools. And a familiar name exits the industry. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. TrickBot's infrastructure proved resilient enough to stage a partial recovery from last week's government and industry takedowns. Dark Reading and others have reported... But this isn't a short one-time campaign, and the efforts to take down TrickBot have proven at least as determined to hit the gang's business as the gang itself has been to stay up and operating. Security Week wrote that threat intelligence shop Intel 471 found that many of the new servers TrickBot's masters had re-established were not responding to bot requests. There's a reason for that. Microsoft late yesterday published an update on its efforts against the botnet, which it described as following a persistent and layered approach. Redmond identified 59 new servers established by TrickBot's operators and by yesterday had taken down all but one of them. TrickBot may be back again, but governments and companies will be watching for it. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has established a rumor control page for 2020 election security, The page identifies nine myths and offers a debunking of each, covering topics such as voter registration databases, website outages and defacements, mail-in ballots, and other misinformation that's making the rounds. It's worth a look and perhaps useful to send around to those friends and relatives who just can't resist forwarding the latest conspiracy theory memes. So keep calm and keep on, as rumor control sites traditionally say. ABC News quotes senior leaders at the Department of Homeland Security who counsel patience as well as vigilance. 
The U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission's white paper on supply chain security sees China as the principal threat. Quote, Dependency on China and other adversary countries for some of our most critical supply chains threatens to undermine the trustworthiness of critical technologies and components that constitute and connect to cyberspace. This dependency also risks impairing the availability of these same critical technologies and components and compromises American and partner competitiveness in global markets in the face of Chinese economic aggression. End quote. It outlines five pillars in its proposed approach to supply chain security, a mix of ensuring domestic supplies and providing accurate, actionable intelligence on threats to supply chains. First, the Commission recommends identifying key technologies and equipment through government reviews and public-private partnerships to identify risk. Second, ensuring minimum viable manufacturing capacity through both strategic investment and the creation of economic clusters. Third, protecting supply chains from compromise through better intelligence, information sharing, and product testing. Fourth, stimulating a domestic market through targeted infrastructure investment and ensuring the ability of firms to offer products in the United States similar to those offered in foreign markets. And fifth, ensuring global competitiveness of trusted supply chains, including American and partner companies, in the face of Chinese anti-competitive behavior in global markets. So, Pillars 1 and 3 concentrate on intelligence, Pillars 2 and 4 support development and maintenance of strong domestic market, and the fifth pillar supports closer ties with allied countries' producers. Japanese authorities and organizers of the Tokyo Olympic Games, now postponed to next summer, say that they intend to increase their vigilance in response to British and American reports that Russian intelligence services were preparing to interfere with the Games. Reuters reports that the organizers say any such interference had no effect. And finally, we close with some industry news. NSS Labs, the well-known specialist in security technology testing, has ceased operations. Security Week points out that NSS has since last year been owned by private equity shop Consecutive Incorporated. Some good people worked at NSS Labs, and now would be a good time to reach out to them if you're looking for cyber talent. Such talent is famously scarce, and there are now some solid operators on the job market. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Carolyn Crandall is Chief Deception Officer from Ativo Networks, a provider of deception technology. I caught up with her recently for an overview of what exactly we're talking about when we refer to deception technology, how it differs from traditional honeypots, and where she thinks things are headed. We worked with a company called Deceptive Defense. Its uh, founder is Kevin Fiscus, and we wanted somebody to run an independent study, right? We didn't just want to have something provided with a vendor where they reiterated uh, what we were saying. And so they used a combination of uh, industry information, so using things like from Ponemon Institute and Mandiant and other well-known reputable organizations that have done a lot of research on the core data. And then what we did is, is we merged those things together along with actual customer experiences to be able to quantify what those benefits might be. And so taking those pieces, we then started to break it down because it's one thing to produce a number, it's another thing to produce the methodology behind it. And we set up a structure so people could follow us through things like, okay, well, breach avoidance and breach uh, data breach savings, what does that look like? And how do you come up to the numbers? And same thing with the SOC uh, side of things. What inefficiencies do you address and make better? And we boiled those down into um, being able to articulate savings that reflected, um, you know, a 51% savings and reduction of breach costs and uh, SOC efficiency savings of about 32%. Hmm. Well, I mean, let's dig into just some of the, the specifics of what you found here and, and uh, what you believe the impact will be. What were some of the things that really struck you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting on the, the data breach side things. I mean, obviously you have to have had a breach. And so some people go, well, you know, how do I leverage or use that? And although I think it's useful, again, as you pull the pieces apart to go, okay, what was the main catalyst for the, the breach savings? And that's associated with reduction in dwell time. You know, the amount of time it takes to detect an attacker. And there are different stats that show just the time to, to detect and then the time to detect and to, uh, to remediate. And whichever number you use, you can bring that down to a 90 to 97% uh, reduction in dwell time. And so being able to get people to think about um, being able to respond more quickly to attacks that may have bypassed a prevention uh, defense or the endpoint defenses. Um, and even that in itself is an interesting interesting discussion because if you think a lot about the endpoint technologies that are there today, they're really focused on preventing that initial compromise, but they don't really kick in as well when the attacker starts to move laterally off the endpoint. And so when we look at the value of deception technology and, and what Ativo does as a company, it's to prevent the attacker from getting off of the endpoint. And in that action, when they do, we're going to be able to set up, uh, you know, traps, lures, misdirections with deceptive technologies that will reveal that attacker very quickly. As an alternative, you would weigh that against waiting for the attack to try to um, detonate malware or take an action where the exploit triggers an alarm. 
And again, assuming that it triggers an alarm. And so there are some direct correlations to the amount of time it takes to be able to detect that adversary to the amount of mess that that attacker can make and the damages that they can cause. And so I think that's the big takeaway on the breach savings is that early detection has a lot of benefits, um, especially when that detection is actionable. That's Carolyn Crandall from Ativo Networks. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, You know, we've seen some interesting um, movements from some of these big social media platforms, particularly as we've been getting closer and closer to the election. And as we record this and air this, we are days away from said election. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, we've seen uh, Twitter, you know, putting some tags on on some of uh, the president's tweets when they've determined that there could be some, uh, you know, potentially dangerous, <laughs> misleading information when it comes to medical information or things like that. Right. Uh, they don't delete the tweets, but they say, hey, you know, we're just tagging this so you know that um, maybe you should take a an alternative look at this, if this is something you're interested in. And here, uh, this and here's thing, a link with some other information in it. Right, right, right. exactly. This whole thing kind of came to a bit of a head uh, recently when uh, both Twitter and Facebook uh, kind of put the brakes on a breaking story from the New York Post. Right. Uh, that had some uh, potentially damaging October surprise kind of information about presidential candidate and former vice president Joe Biden, uh, his, his son, son. Yeah. the Ukrainian story. Correct. Um, so uh, putting aside, you know, the politics of the story itself. Yes. Uh, you've got some thoughts on this action itself, what yeah. Facebook and Twitter have done here. That's right. I, I want to be clear about this. I'm not upset that they're uh, holding back a story from one political party or that benefits one political party or another. Uh, or from one side of the political spectrum. My concern is that they're holding back a story from a news outlet and not letting users share this story on their platform. Or when they do let them share it, in Facebook's case, they uh, demote it in the algorithm that they use to provide information that shows up on your feed. So Mm -hmm. a lot fewer people are going to see it when you post it. Um, Twitter said, we're not going to do it because this post contains material that was obtained via hacking. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting to me, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the word censorship and, right. uh, you know, these are private companies. These are censorship, private companies, you're right. Censorship has to do with the government controlling uh, what agreed. you can and cannot agreed. see. So this is a private company deciding what they, how they want their platform used, how they want things spread on their privately owned platform. Um, so isn't that uh, within their right to do so? And, and in this age of... Um, you know, things spreading around at the speed of light, uh, we, we, which is something we complain about a lot, especially, you know, when it comes to disinformation. Uh, maybe it's a good thing that they're pumping the brakes here. Yeah, I think, I think what needs to happen is there needs to be some kind of uh, statement from government, from, from regulators here, that says what Facebook is and what social media companies are, like Twitter. The, there's the big question of, are they a platform or are they a publisher, right? Uh, here, they're behaving very much like a publisher, where they're limiting what goes on the page. Now, a platform, you think of a platform like the phone company. Uh, the phone company is not held liable for misinformation spread across the phone lines because of the nature of the phone company. And, and should we treat social media platforms like that, or should we treat them like publishers who are responsible for their content? Now, it's a very different situation with a phone call and with a with a social media platform. When I pick up my phone, I can only call one, two, three people. It takes a lot, a lot of time for me to do that. There's a physical limiting factor there that's not existent on these social media platforms, right? Right. Um, so I think there needs to be some kind of statement from regulators about this. And this is one of the big reasons I say over and over and over again, don't get your political news from Facebook or Twitter or any social media platform. It, mm. You're already in an echo chamber, and now they're controlling that echo chamber and what you hear and you see. You're going to have to take it upon yourself, good citizen, to go out to these uh, sources that you should be reading from and, and look at them yourself. You're not going to be able to get your news. I don't think you should even try to get your news from Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess coming at it from, from another side, uh, it seems to me that if these platforms have reason to believe that this news story is being put out there and it's not being done in good faith. Um, you know, this isn't a, a situation where uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the, you know, half a dozen of the big newspapers of the world simultaneously come out with, are, are in agreement about any particular story. Um, you know, this is a, a tabloid newspaper uh, who, <laughs> known for such headlines as Bezos exposes Pecker, <laughs> and uh, headless body in topless bar. Well, you know, yeah. the, the <laughs> so I, I guess I'm saying as long as it's labeled, um, it, it's not like if you're interested in this story, you couldn't go to the New York Post's site to find it. I guess I don't have a problem with um, these platforms saying we're going to pause here until – we until more people look into this because there's a high likelihood in our opinion that this is this story is not being shared in good faith so in, we're not going to let it we know what happens when a story like this goes out we know better than anybody what happens when a story like this goes out which is that it explodes and spreads around the world right. and there's that old saying from um from Mark Twain about how a lie spreads around the world while the, while the truth is still tying its shoes um <laughs> so i i we, we can't have it both ways. You know, we complain about these platforms and, and that's the, that's the, that's the difficulty here, right? It's, right. And it, to your point about what are they? Are they a platform? Are they, 
Are they publishers? I, I think it's difficult. Um, these these are difficult fits and starts that we're going through to try to figure out how we're going to deal with this stuff. Yeah. And what's in our best interest, both as a nation and, and around the globe. Yeah, agreed. Um, I think I'm going to change my profile pick to just big words and say, don't get your political news here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, this this too will play out, right? I mean, it's it going to be interesting to see both from a regulatory point of view, from a uh, just uh, est- establishing norms, uh, both socially and within uh, the publishing industry. You know, we're, we're all watching this play out in real time, and, it, yeah. and it's fascinating. Pay attention, everybody. All right, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 